Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Picture a red carpet with couples popping out of limos. There's a woman in a tiara and a string of pearls. There's a man with slick back hair and a beautiful leather jacket. They walk into a room with a sparkling chandelier bathed in blue lighting. There are cameras flashing and live musicians playing. You could be forgiven for thinking this was the Oscars or the Met Gala. Some costume night or something. School fundraiser. A very, very fancy school fundraiser. It's the central event in Big Little Lies, a TV show that revolves around a murder. A murder that takes place right in the middle of this party. Already dead when we arrived. But honestly, when I watched the show, yeah, the murder seemed bad. But what really frustrated me was the event itself. Don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not saying that an over-the-top school fundraiser is as bad as a murder. But I think it's fair to ask, is this school fundraiser doing more harm than good? This is Future Perfect on the Vox Media Podcast Network, a show about how we try to do good. I'm Dylan Matthews. All season long, we've been bringing you stories about millionaires, billionaires, and foundations giving money away. We've talked about the ways that big philanthropy can be undemocratic. But what about little philanthropy? What about the donations that you and I make to causes we believe in? Causes like, say, our local public school. To understand why exactly school fundraising is so flawed, we talked to Dana Goldstein, an education reporter at the New York Times. Back in 2017, she went to visit a school district in California that was wrestling with this problem, a district shared between two cities that are almost an hour apart in traffic, Santa Monica and Malibu. These are both two very desirable areas. I called them, I think, in my article, sun-kissed. But they are different from each other. Malibu... It's a beachy town, uh, more resort-like. And while Santa Monica is also very, very nice... Designer boutiques, lovely restaurants. It has some pockets of poverty. And it's probably not a surprise that the schools in the poorer parts of this shared district were having very different fundraisers from the schools in the richer neighborhoods. At the Point Doom Marine Science Elementary School in Malibu. That's Doom spelled D-U-M-E. It sounds ominous, but it's actually gorgeous. The school is right near the water. And back in 2017, it had an impressive fundraiser. There were 10-person tables that parents would buy to sit at at this fundraiser party that happened once a year. And those tables cost between $2,000 and $15,000. 
there would be auctions and parents would donate cool stuff that could be auctioned off to raise money for the school. And those would include vacations like a weekend in Las Vegas, a private chef service, and a pink guitar that was signed by the Red Hot Chili Peppers who live in Malibu. This, again, is a public school. Meanwhile, at a different public school, when in a pocket of poverty... The principal said that they certainly do have active parents, but very few could afford thousands or hundreds of dollar donations. And she said $20 would be more of a donation that parents at her school would be comfortable with. Which is how the Santa Monica Malibu district wound up with some PTAs raising an extra $2,000 or so for every student. And other PTAs, the ones at the lowest income schools, raising about $100 per student. And maybe you're thinking, this is a drop in the bucket compared to the money these schools get from the government. But this difference in money can be really, really important. In California, for example, there's a cap on property taxes. That limits the tax revenue that can be collected locally for schools. So these PTA fundraisers make up some of the difference. And while sometimes the PTA money is used to pay for cool add-ons like yoga classes or telescopes, Often it's used for really basic programs, what some people would call necessities. Some schools, parents would raise money for a science lab and a science teacher and an art teacher. And some schools would just not have those things and maybe have to rely on charity or nonprofits to kind of scrimp and and try to get those things. And this is not just a Malibu Santa Monica problem or just a California problem. This is a problem across the country. There are PTAs that raise $1 million per year for their schools, $2 million per year. Dana was recently working on a story about how parents of four-year-olds decide where to send their kids to public schools. The parents she shadowed were pretty wealthy. They could send their kids to private school if they wanted to. One of the main questions these parents had for principals was, what is your annual revenue for PTA fundraising. So this is something that parents are asking about because they know that baseline school funding is not enough for their kids, in their view. Dana says these parents are looking for schools with PTAs that can pull in hundreds of thousands of extra dollars each year. But of course, in order to have that level of PTA funding, it's going to probably be a school that overwhelmingly serves higher-income kids. They're going to be more likely to be white, And it does all feed into segregation of our schools. Not all states let PTAs pay for essentials. In New York, for example, PTAs can't pay for teachers of core subjects. But still, computers can count as extra stuff. So does literacy coaching. You can basically secure more of a private school experience within the public education system through parent donations. And a school that's just a few miles away may have none of these extras. About a decade ago, Santa Monica and Malibu came up with an unusual solution to all this unequal funding. Let's start at the beginning, in 2011. There was a superintendent named Sandra Lyon, and in 2011, she decided that the right thing to do would be to equalize some of these parent donations across the many schools in the district. Basically, she said, okay, parents, if you want to raise money to pay for core or extracurricular programs, stuff like art, science, reading, you have to share it with everyone. All the schools in the district will fundraise. All the money for programs will go into a common pot, and then we'll split it between the schools. 
Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Board of Education meeting of November 17th, 2011. The policy came up before the board, and there was a public meeting to discuss it. It was so crowded they had to set up a second room. I don't know if it's full, but we set it up so that you could watch the meeting on TV. They also hired a security guard. So we have a vision for Santa Monica. So at this meeting, Sandra Lyon, the superintendent, gets up. She gives a PowerPoint presentation about why she wants the district to share money between schools. This PowerPoint is pretty bare bones, as a gray and black color scheme, a lot of tables and bullet-pointed lists. But she shows everyone how unequal the fundraising is at different schools. And she reminds them that the district's mission statement is about achievement for all. Extraordinary achievement for all while simultaneously closing the achievement gap. Then she closes with some words of wisdom. Um, And then this is a quote from Emerson. Whatever course you decide upon, there's always someone to tell you that you are wrong. There are always difficulties arising which tempt you to believe that your critics are right. To map out a course of action and to follow it to an end requires courage. With that, she opened the floor. So we're going to have, we have public comment now, and Mr. Allen will uh, call the names and so forth before we start. I'm not sure, I don't think I've ever seen as many public comments, and so people will have two minutes each. Even with two minutes per speaker, the meeting went on for five and a half more hours. People had a lot to say. Some of them supported the policy. Good evening, school board, school board members and superintendent. Like this mom from a lower-income neighborhood. We want you to know that many of us have low-wage jobs. The $20 a family can give is very little compared to what it's needed. But the policy also had critics. I attend a school that is fortunate to have a lot of parents who donate. And unfortunately, if the superintendent's proposal is passed, we will stop donating. It just kept going. We have to pay taxes when and where the government says we do. But how and where we practice our charitable giving or manage our household budgets is an entirely different ballgame. All kids need to get education, not just certain classes get education. You cannot add height to a short person by cutting off the head of a tall one. Students who live within blocks of each other have vastly different learning opportunities. Angry parents will not give. They won't. I'm sorry to say, but they won't. I'll speak for myself. I will give less. And there are a few issues where parents look at how individual board members vote. And if this goes in the not good direction, I can easily see people asking me to take the money I'm not donating to the school and donate it to different candidates for the board when the next election cycle comes. Or, God forbid, they talk about recall campaigns. But there is, do I hear cheering from the other room? Oh, my. The meeting wrapped up at 1.53 a.m. Sandra Lyon lived up to that Emerson quote she read at the end of her presentation. Despite her very vocal critics, she mapped out her course of action and followed it to an end. The fundraising sharing plan went through. Fast forward six years. The plan was still in effect, and Dana came to visit to report on how it was going. She could see the benefits for the lower-income schools, like Edison, a bilingual Spanish-English school in Santa Monica. 
Yeah, so Edison had quite a bit on their campus that was just visibly there because of this system. So the telescope, a brand new science lab, the salary of the art teacher who was putting on these incredible productions. Um, She was doing sort of a mix of visual arts and performing arts and these beautiful murals that she had worked on with students, psychedelic paintings of Latino historic figures like Cesar Chavez. The poorer schools in Santa Monica were looking a lot more like the rich schools in the district. But all the frustration you heard from the rich school parents at the meeting, it hadn't gone away. It had just been simmering for those six years, especially in Malibu. Some Malibu parents stopped donating altogether, just like they promised they would. At one point, only one in 10 Malibu parents were giving to their schools. Well, about one in three Santa Monica parents were. Other parents were calling for Malibu to make its own separate school district. They'd wanted this for a while. This plan to redistribute parent donations just really put a fire under the parents in Malibu. In Santa Monica, they were really anxious and worried about this. Uh, Malibu is the higher tax higher-funded area of the district, and they were quite anxious about what would happen if the community split off. In 2018, the fundraising plan came up for a vote again, and the school board voted unanimously. Malibu was not going to leave the school district. However, they are no longer going to be participating in this redistribution effort with Santa Monica. The fundraising sharing policy fell apart. Santa Monica will still have a centralized parent donation system for schools in Santa Monica, and Malibu says that they're going to do the same, but only for schools in Malibu. And this also so revealing. It's like, we like the idea of sharing, but these are the people we want to share with. Exactly. And I think if you saw many more cities across the country or towns across the country say, hold on a second, it's not fair that schools a few miles from each other have totally different programs because of parent fundraising, let's try to equalize this, there'd be a huge outcry. If you were a parent at one of the schools where over half your donation is destined to leave your school and your community, would you continue to donate? Many of these parents are progressive politically. They're Democrats. They vote for liberal candidates for office. I don't like the inequity any better than anybody else does. We do believe in parity. We do want to help. I am passionately in favor of opportunity for all. I would beg you to consider how to accomplish that goal how to lift everyone up rather than bring everyone to a mediocre middle ground that serves no one. These people don't think they're hurting other people's kids. They think they're helping their own. There's just an assumption that this is something you can do, that you can fund your own child's school. It's easy to see why parents assume this. Donating to public schools feels like a great thing to do with your money even if you're just donating to one school, even if your kid happens to benefit and more needy kids lose out. After the break, how a parent could do good for all public schools. We've talked to Rob Reich on this season of Future Perfect before. He wrote Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better, a book that covers a lot of the same ideas as this show. 
But one difference between his book and our podcast is Rob didn't end his book with a discussion of PTA fundraising. He started it there. So the way I got into my book in the first place was through this unexpected experience as a parent. My kids were just finishing up preschool and I was getting ready to send them off to the public school. I lived at the time in Palo Alto. Palo Alto is a wealthy Silicon Valley suburb. And on the first day of kindergarten, my son came home with the usual pile of notes about welcome to the district, we're so proud to have you. And then there was a separate letter that was from the Palo Alto School Foundation that said, Dear Parent, your expected but voluntary contribution to the Palo Alto School Foundation this year is $2,000 or something like that. And I fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe that the Palo Alto School System was expecting me to donate $2,000 to what was already perceived to be by many an excellent public school system. Because Rob is a father and a scholar, he got back in his chair and started poking around into the school fundraising stuff. Like Dana, he turned up Big Little Lies-style school fundraisers all around Silicon Valley. If you donated, you could win a trip to Hawaii or a meet-and-greet with a celebrity. I mean, the most visible symbol of this that so irritates me is that in many schools here in Silicon Valley, the best parking spot in the limited available parking of the school is a sign that says school auction donor the spot closest to the school to drop your kid off and pick your kid up. And you can get tens of thousands of dollars for that. But that just is preposterous to me. And then along the way, I discovered that when you make a $1,000 contribution to the Palo Alto school system, it's a tax-deductible contribution. So the federal government and the rest of the citizens were subsidizing the worsening of an inequality. That's right. You pay a few thousand dollars. You get the best parking space. Your kid gets a better art class. And everyone else pays for it because you're paying less in taxes. For Rob, these small fundraisers have all the problems that we've outlined for big philanthropy. To remind you, those problems, briefly, are... Big philanthropy is an exercise of power. It also happens to be unaccountable, non-transparent, donor-directed, by default perpetual, and lavishly tax-advantaged power. That's a lot of adjectives, but let's break it down. Unaccountable. Donors aren't elected officials, so there's no way to hold them accountable. Donor-directed. Donors get to donate to whatever they want. And as for lavishly tax-advantaged... When philanthropy is underwritten by the general public in the form of foregone tax revenue, that gives us additional reason to think that the public has a stake in and perhaps even a say in what it is that philanthropists do with, quote unquote, their money. And here we have a case in which this just operates now on a local level. Rob isn't opposed to sharing all the fundraising between schools, like the Malibu Santa Monica fix that fell apart. But he says it still relies on donors. And that's a problem. Because Malibu Santa Monica has lots of rich people in the district. But what about poorer districts nearby? If they pool all their fundraising dollars, they'll have less money than Malibu Santa Monica schools. Instead, Rob wants parents to focus on changing laws and raising taxes. I have been uninvited from a whole bunch of summer barbecues uh, on the weekend from people who are big players in the PTA. And I'm the skunk in the room always. I'm the guy who says, no, I, I don't think this is a good idea. When the school foundation is ready to 
trek off to Sacramento and complain about the school finance system in California. Sign me up for that. So when you had these arguments with with parents at your kid's school and they were saying, you know, what's wrong with us trying to make it a little bit better? How would you try to to respond to that? Since I think this is this natural sort of parental instinct of I want the best for my kid. I want to give them the best that they have. What's wrong with that? I'll point out that some of the most politically influential people describe themselves as doing something noble by supporting their own kids' public schools and their own town schools rather than sending their kids to private school. And they have a point about that. I would say, imagining actual conversations I've had. So, you know, someone says, Rob, hey, listen, I'm a co-host of the school auction, and it would be so great if you came this year. So I'd say something like, how much money per kid are we aiming to raise through these school auctions? And they'd say, we're trying to raise about $500 a kid. And I'd say, well, you know, well, why, dear friend, are you investing your time in organizing the school auction as opposed to trying to organize to have a new tax campaign? It's a reliable form of funding. It doesn't require showing up for a school auction. And the answer would be, Rob, politics is uncertain. I, I don't know how that whole process works, but I do know how to put together an evening event in which to ask people to make a charitable contribution. And... I finally, you know, come to point out that the effort is laudable and indeed is understandable, but that I just couldn't in good conscience participate in myself. And eventually people would, you know, either let me off the hook and see that I was an immovable case or what happened more frequently. Rob, I, I'm so glad that we talked today. You have given me so much to think about. By the way, is your wife around? They direct their attention to my wife rather than at me, who is more likely to show up at the school auction. What she'd say is that while she agrees with the views that I have, that she also thinks that maintaining social friendships and social graces is an important rival value. And if making a $100 contribution at the school auction is a way to maintain social graces, that's a, a small price to pay. And I have to admit, she has a point. To some extent, the problems with PTAs aren't just about philanthropy. They're about class and social pressure and segregation. They're about what it means to be part of a community, even when that community has practices you find troubling. But that's the point. Philanthropy isn't some thing out there that rich people do. It's something we all do, that we all participate in, whether we think of it that way or not. When you help your kid's school, that's philanthropy. When you give five bucks to your church or temple or mosque, that's philanthropy. When you help your cousin do a run against cancer and pledge $10 per mile, that's philanthropy. And all of it raises these tough issues about who gets to decide where the money goes and where it doesn't. In a second Gilded Age, those issues are most profound for the richest few. But the rest of us face them as well. We shouldn't run from these problems. If this season has a message, it's that philanthropy isn't just a benign, positive thing that we can support and scan over without thinking about it much. It's a profound way that we reshape our society, for the better and for the worse. It's a way we exercise power over each other. And we should think hard about how to exercise that power in a way that serves justice, not only ourselves. 
This is our final episode this season. And as always, it was produced and co-reported by Bert Pinkerton, my partner in crime here. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. We were mixed by Jared Paul. Our fact-checking was done by Laura Bullard. Our music is by Chris Zabriskie, APM, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our PTA mom voice was Vox's incredible managing editor, Kate Daly. Scott Sargrad at the Center for American Progress spoke to us about the great PTA report he co-authored, Hidden Money. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out vox.com future perfect. Our show is all about how people try to do good, even if they don't succeed. If you have ideas for stories we should cover going forward in that vein, please do send them our way. My email is dylan, D-Y-L-A-N, at vox, V-O-X, dot com. <laughs> <laughs>